sit down today. You may be seated. While you're seated, I'm going to ask you to take out your Bibles and turn to James chapter 5. James chapter 5, and we're going to read in a moment verses 7 through 12. My name is Colby Garman. I'm one of the pastors here uh, at Pillar Church, and I'm excited to be able to open God's Word with you this morning, to be able to celebrate uh, God's goodness and dig into what He has to speak to us about as we study His Word this morning. So James chapter 5, uh, I'm going to begin reading in verse 7, and I'm going to read down through verse 12. And we're just going to uh, study this passage together today as we come close to the end of the book of James. Verse 7, James writes, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Lord, we thank you for your word. We, we pray that you would help us to, to mine out of it the riches that you have placed in it. Lord, I pray that you would make us attentive to uh, what you want to say to us through it and how it impacts our lives. We pray that your Holy Spirit would give us an openness today to receive what you want to say and, and to be able to uh, open our minds and hearts to how you want to correct and encourage us. In Jesus' name, amen. A few years ago, uh, a man named Jonathan Fleming was released from prison in New York after serving 25 years of a life sentence for the death of Daryl Rush. John Fleming had been convicted of the killing in 1989 and served that 25-year sentence after being, uh, receiving a guilty verdict. The entire time, though, John Fleming maintained his insistence that he was completely innocent and that he had been at Disney World while the killing had occurred. Well, after 25 years of continuing to maintain that same sense of innocence, a review committee looked at his case. Fleming had, you see, claimed to have a receipt in his pocket for a hotel phone bill paid in Florida at the time of the murder, but the authorities claimed that there was no such receipt to be found on him when he was arrested. Well, 25 years later, that review committee found the receipt, and it was discovered in police records, and Fleming was exonerated and vindicated and walked out free. Now, I imagine his vindication came with a certain amount of bitterness and loss and regret. But to be exonerated and vindicated for your innocence is a sweet thing. 
I cannot imagine how Jonathan Fleming felt to be vindicated after so many years of continuing to maintain his innocence. But uh, we long, if you think about it, we all long for some sort of vindication in our life all the time. We all have decisions that we have made where we feel like they haven't been shown to pay off or positions that we hold or ways of life that we cling to where we look forward to one day to be vindicated for where we stood. Have you ever wanted vindication for something? I mean, deep down, a decision that you made that others disagreed with, a false accusation that you endured that you found it impossible to exonerate yourself from on your own, a principled commitment to hard work that you felt was left unrecognized while other people seemed to get the recognition. Have you ever deeply longed for a sense of vindication? Maybe even for trust you put in God that was difficult during a season of trials and you wonder if it was really worth it. We all want to be vindicated at some point in life. In a sense, this is what this passage that we just read is really about the desire to be vindicated and seen and proven true and trustworthy and right. That word vindication simply means proof that someone or something is right, reasonable, or justified. And we all have a desire. And James, in this passage, he pictures the faithful Christian life as something that will only find its real vindication on the day that the Lord comes to judge the world and set up His eternal kingdom. He, he Really, James wants to talk to us in this passage about when we expect to be really vindicated. Because often we want to be vindicated now. He says that we should expect this sort of vindication at the coming of the Lord. Until then, we live in a broken world, a broken shadow land where where righteousness is often shrouded and evil can be trumped about like it is good. We live in a world where the success of the greedy and the, the greedy wealthy can appear to be appealing while patient faithfulness appears to never pay off. And we can long for vindication. Into this sort of confusion, James tells us that if we are going to live an undivided life, a life that is wholehearted and devoted to God, we have to be clear about when we are looking for our vindication. About when we expect to be shown to have put our hope in the right place. We must set our undivided gaze on the coming of the Lord, James says. The Apostle Paul describes the very attitude that is at the heart of James' instruction here when he says in Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. We wait. We are urged to live like citizens with an undivided allegiance and an undivided hope in the coming of the Lord for our vindication. This will give us, he says, the perspective needed to be marked by three qualities that James urges us to maintain while we wait for the coming of the Lord. 
And we're going to look at those qualities in a moment. But before we look at how the coming of the Lord produces these qualities, let's go ahead and address a challenge to our contemporary ears as we read this passage. The challenge is to address the imminence or nearness of the coming of the Lord. That sounds like something it's hard for us to wrap our head around. The, the force of James' teaching, actually, and his insight here in this passage hangs on the reality of the imminence or nearness of the coming of the Lord and the establishment of His kingdom. Look at all the references to it right here in the passage. Verse 7, be patient, he says, until the coming of the Lord. Verse 8, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Verse 9, behold, the judge is standing at the door. It's a sense of this nearness of the coming of the Lord. Verse 12, honesty is commanded so that we will not be condemned at that time. Why sell yourself out now when the Lord is at hand and we will be condemned in due time if we are dishonest? So the instruction James has for us depends entirely on this truth of the gospel message. That God's Son, the risen Savior, will come to judge the living and the dead and save those who have trusted in Him by faith. It is a truth that Christian saints have rested in down through the ages as the Nicene Creed written in the 4th century bears witness to. Dated to the 4th century, the Nicene Creed that Christians would repeat week after week as they gathered says, I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ who rose again on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and His kingdom will have no end. But if you are like me, despite all of this clarity, admittedly we need to address this question, if James thought it was near, was he simply wrong? I mean, there's some time that has elapsed, can't we admit, between when James wrote these words in the late 40s or early 50s A.D. and 2023. That's a considerable amount of time to say that something is at hand and that the Lord is near. Is anybody with me? Fair. But I just want to just address the question of whether James was simply wrong about that. Well, let me just say five things about what it means in the Scriptures that the coming of the Lord is near. The first one is this. I want to point out that the disciples spoke of it as near, but none ever pretended to have a timetable for the Lord's coming. The the coming of the Lord actually is pictured as not just sort of a singular moment of the return, but the coming of the Lord is this massive uh, end-of-the-age unveiling of God's purposes and promises. It's sort of like a big basket of all that God is going to do when He brings things to a close. So there are many aspects to it often talked about in Scripture. And, And so the coming of the Lord being near, though, the disciples spoke of it as near, but none pretended to have a timetable. Second, thing, Jesus made it clear that his father alone knew the timing of his coming. He didn't say that we would particularly be able to interpret or know just how near, near would really be. Number three, and maybe more importantly, 
In the parables, there are parables that Jesus told in the gospel that indicate that it would be long enough that people would be tempted to stop waiting for it. In fact, they would stop waiting for it so much that they would be found unprepared when the coming of the Lord actually happens. Some eventually stopped waiting because of how long it took and then were found unprepared at His return. In Luke 17, verses 26 and 27, Jesus says, Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. And in the account, it took Noah a good many years to build the ark, and many would have thought after such a long time he would have stopped believing and abandoned the whole thing and gone on with life as usual. Jesus tells us that this is the sense of things at his return. So Jesus believed that it would be long enough that people wouldn't be waiting for it anymore. Number four. Peter deals with the very question we're talking about in the late first century in 2 Peter chapter 3. He says, they will say, where is this promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. In verse 8 though, he reminds us, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow about His promise as we count slowness. He's answering our question right here. But is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish but for all to come to repentance. That one of the reasons of God's delay in bringing this promise to fruition is patience with those who have not yet repented of their sin, put their faith in Christ, and been reconciled to God and are ready for the day of His coming. And he says a day to the Lord is like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day. Number five, James says it is near because in the scope of God's plan, it is next. Here's the sense of nearness I think we get from the New Testament writers, is that there's nothing that prohibits it but God's mercy and patience with His plan. So as Christians, we trust the teaching of Jesus and the apostles that Jesus will come as a good and just judge who will vindicate what is good and faithful and will condemn what has been wicked. The broken things of this world will be made straight and everything will be seen for what it truly has been in that day at the coming of the Lord. If you find this foolish, listen, please consider the alternative for a moment. If you're here and you think all of this thought that there is a God who will rightly judge the world and who has entrusted it to his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will return as his judge, you say, that's just foolish. Life just goes on. Things happen. We live. We die. Uh, But let let me just appeal to you for a moment. If you find this foolish, please consider the alternative. A world where there is no judge and no ultimate justice. Not only have the wicked and the powerful prevailed, but there's no basis for calling anything wicked. The oppressed have not been dealt an injustice that will be set straight. They've simply lost 
and been too weak to do anything about it. Those who have sacrificed for the good of others have not set an example worth emulating. They've simply done the foolish thing of letting someone else live and forfeited their own life. You can try to make it meaningful, but if there's no ultimate purpose or end found in the just dealings of an all-wise God, then all our attempts at purpose and meaning are just make-believe and play. But none of us can live that way. We have to force ourselves into thinking there is an ultimate justice, and if there's an ultimate justice, there's an ultimate judge. This is exactly what God says the Bible teaches Jesus will do. That he's the one we entrust ourselves to for justice in whom we seek real and genuine vindication. None of us can live that way because God has made us for himself and he's left this indelible mark of his image in our soul. And so we hunger for justice day by day. We hunger for vindication, for standing in faith and waiting on the Lord, for being patient and believing that the Lord will bless the fruit of faithfulness. We, we long for it because God has made us in his image. And it's him that we are ultimately longing for. And James helps us see that we must not look for this vindication quickly or in the present order of things, but at the coming of the Lord. So knowing this, he shows us three qualities of what will happen in our lives if we have set our hope on the coming of the Lord as our timing for vindication. He shows us that the undivided citizen of God's kingdom will wait for vindication in three ways, and I'm going to outline them for, with the time that we have left. The first one is this, we will wait with patience. What he says is once you've locked in and decided that you will trust the Lord for your vindication and trust him at his coming to be the judge, you will wait with patience. Verses 7 and 8, we see this. Be patient. Look how many times it says it. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also, for a third time, be patient patient patience patience in general is an important virtue we know that don't we the scripture compels us to patience in many different circumstances it's one of the character qualities produced by the presence of the holy spirit paul says in galatians chapter 5 well here james has something actually really specific in mind when he's talking about patience i don't know if you noticed it he's he's actually talking about patience with the fruit of faithfulness in our life you know, he sees every decision we make as a planting of a seed. Every decision you make, everything you do, every action you take is a planting of a seed that will one, one day be harvested. You know, many times in the, in the work and effort of life and decisions and responsibility and what we're going to set our hope on, we're just steadily planting seeds for which we await the fruit. Now, some of us have felt the bitterness of Harvesting evil fruit from past decisions. But you know, if you've ever set your heart on <clears throat> being faithful, you know that oftentimes it can be difficult to endure with patience until those decisions come to real fruit. And James has this specifically in mind. <clears throat> we, we live in a results-oriented culture. And James reminds Christians of the danger of getting caught up in an immediate results-oriented culture. Instant and visible results are not 
the vindication of faithful living. Quick results, more often than not, display a sense of undermining the sort of things that really bring long-term fruit. Instead, James looks at this and, and he instructs us to take a good look at the farmer here in this passage. In Israel, a farmer was dependent on two seasons of rain. There was an early rain at, during the sowing of the crop that took place, and then there were latter rains as the, as the time grew near for the fruit to mature. And both of the rains were critical for a good harvest, the early rains and the latter rains. And the farmer had no control over the rain and the timing and the size of the harvest, but he says here that the patient farmer waits for the rains to come, both the early rains and the late rains, depending on God for the fruit. The farmer had no control over the rain. For that, he was dependent on God. Here, James uses the term early and latter rain because in Deuteronomy, God promises to the faithful in Israel that he will give the rain in his timing, both the early rain and the latter rain, and he moves to a spiritual truth from this physical reality to say, this is the pattern of how God moves in our lives. Often things lie dormant beneath the soil until God brings the latter rain, and in a time when we weren't expecting it, he brings fruit from our faithfulness. So we wait for the Lord's vindication and the Lord's bringing of fruit. Because the fruit that we force is really never fruit. James pictures the whole of our life like one great season of sowing and harvest and wants us to wait faithfully for the Lord's harvest rather than abandon it before it ripens. Why would he do that? Why would James do this? Well, because the fruit of faithfulness, he says, is precious. It's precious and those who quit will forsake it for an alternative fruit that will be shown to be worthless in the day that the Lord Jesus comes to harvest the earth. James wants to remind us what the author of the, soul, of the song My Soul Finds Rest in God Alone wrote when he said, The fields of hope in which we sow are harvested in heaven. If we're not careful, we'll desire to be vindicated before the harvest and we'll take shortcuts. But listen, set your hearts on God and trust in His faithfulness and you will not be disappointed when it really matters. He moves from faithfulness with the fruit of our lives here to how we deal with one another as we walk together as we think about a second point. And we think about the coming of the Lord. He says that the citizens of God's kingdom will wait with vindication for a second thing, and that's peacefulness. They'll wait with peacefulness. You'll see this quality to them as they wait for the day of the Lord. Peacefulness is a personal quality of patience. But here, what he's talking about is the way that peace is played out in our relationships. You're not particularly talking about inner peace. I think he covers that well in patience of a settled resolve of waiting. But here he's actually talking in verse 9 about the way we relate to one another in a supportive fashion that maintains peace. The way James expresses it in this text is found in verse 9 where he applies this patience for fruit by instructing us not to grumble against one another. You see that in verse 9? Do not grumble against one another. 
How's this connected to what James is saying? Well, it makes sense when you think about it. James is concerned that we will focus too much on one another's fruitfulness in the present. We'll focus too much on one another's fruitfulness in the present and feel like we have to prove ourselves to one another. When we do that, we fall into a comparison trap and can easily become critical of one another in our insecurities in ways that the Bible instructs us to avoid. Verse 9, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Listen listen how he says it. When you believe in the nearness of the coming of the Lord, that you're okay for God to sort out who's been right or wrong, (laughs) sort out who's taken a better approach to this or a better approach to that, applied better wisdom to this and a better wisdom to that. When When you know the judge is at the door and the time is near, you really don't have to fight back and forth with one another if you disagree. I mean, our world and our culture is just filled with massive, unnecessary disagreement. Listen, if you don't believe that, you're just not spending enough time on the internet. (laughs) Uh, You know, I've been pastoring for about 22 years, and uh, I've seen nothing like the last five years, both in our broader culture and within churches, I mean, the amount of things that Christians will divide themselves over is just innumerable and and wearying. And and so much of it isn't isn't uh, about the core doctrines of the Christian faith. The deity of Christ, the hope of the cross, the certainty of the resurrection, the coming of the Lord, the importance of just devoting ourselves to good works and being humble and serving our neighbors. Like, it's never about that stuff. It's about endless controversies sort of fine-tuned views of this or that or this interpretation of that scripture and that interpretation of this one. And, and, and instead of recognizing that we're fallible and limited and entrusting ourselves to the day of the Lord is just endless controversy, fighting, and division. Whether it's over you know, politics or doctrine or ways of doing ministry or social decisions, and it's, it's not that we shouldn't care about those things and lean to, to following closely with Scripture. It's just that the spirit of it has become so toxic at times that we certainly can't be reading this passage where it says, do not grumble against one another. And I just want our church to be different than that. I want our church to be a place where we take God's word seriously. We, we wrestle with the difficult teachings of God's word. We challenge one another to examine our lives with faithfulness. But we do it inside the security and presence of a loving environment where we are going to maintain a spirit of peace with one another because we know the judge is at the door. <laughs> that there's a time coming when all these things that we might argue over will be resolved. We shouldn't fall into a comparison trap and become easily critical of one another. To be clear, clear, James is not saying that we should not address sin in one another's lives. When sin is clear, we should call one another to obedience with clarity. But there are hundreds of other decisions in the life of a Christian that are played out there in their situations within their own context. And it's a great danger for us to harshly criticize one another over matters that are not issues of clear sin. 
Oftentimes, a critical spirit is the result of someone who is insecure themselves. So rather than waiting for the Lord of the harvest to examine one another's work, we feel the need to prove that we have been faithful by criticizing others. It's a sort of premature vindication, isn't it? I want to be seen as right now. So I have to prove that you are wrong. Instead of waiting for the judge that is standing at the gate. James pictures it like two feuding citizens awaiting a decision of the judge who are hashing out their argument at the city gates when the judge is just outside the door. That is the image being evoked in verse 9 when he says the judge is at the door. In ancient cities, the judgments were made at the city gates by appointed elders and judges. And James is saying, stop arguing. Just wait a little while and the judge will decide your disputes. In the meantime, focus on your work and not your brothers or your sisters. Parents see this played out. If you've got small kids on a daily basis, one child comes to get you to solve a dispute. And as you're walking downstairs, you can hear the children arguing their case back and forth with one another, even though the rightful authority is coming. Have you ever had this happen? Yeah. It's like, I'm coming. I am, you can hear me coming down the steps. And they're still going back and forth. It doesn't matter if you convince each other because you're going to have to convince me. James says, don't be like little children grumbling against one another when the judge is at the gate. And so he says that, that when we believe in this imminence of the coming of the Lord, we entrust ourselves to him and we maintain a peacefulness with one another. We're able to navigate those differences and entrust them to the Lord. Lastly, the third thing he says is that the quality uh, that this waiting for vindication produces in us, another one is perseverance. Perseverance. Now that may sound a lot like the ones that we just talked about, patience. We've talked, we've talked about this waiting for, waiting with peacefulness. But here he talks in verse 10 and 11 about perseverance. To strengthen our sense of the value of patience, James does two things. He adds another term to patience with a different and complementary flavor. Patience here means to wait a long time. And then he adds a word in verses 10 and 11 for perseverance or steadfastness. You see how he begins in verse 10 and 11, he's talking about steadfastness. Consider the steadfastness, he says, of the prophets. And then he uses Job as a particular example of steadfastness. So, he adds this word perseverance or steadfastness, which means to stand strong in the midst of opposition. So this isn't about time and waiting for the fruit. This is about remaining stable when opposed. Stable when the currents are against us. A steadfastness that doesn't move with the changing winds and the shifting seasons. He says that's how Christians live faithfully in the world. They remain steadfast in the Lord, waiting to be vindicated when Christ comes. So to fill out our picture, he then says, take the example of the prophets who remained steadfast. Now what is particularly special about the steadfastness of the prophets it's that they were steadfast with the plan of life that God orchestrated for them. Although they never saw the fulfillment. They wait even still for the vindication of the Lord. 
You see, one of the great dangers we face with impatience in our desire for vindication is that we would give up on God's calling in our life. God, in His wisdom, often chooses to use us in our lives in ways that we are tempted to even judge Him for. That was Job's temptation. The specific example used here, Job, we find that Job, he says, was faithful. God allowed him to be tested severely. God allowed him to be tested severely. We're not told specifically why God thought that was a good plan. In fact, you know, for all human terms, if you're Job, it probably didn't feel like a great plan. We would even be tempted, I think, to criticize God for his handling of Job. After enduring the difficulties, Job's friends criticized Job for unfaithfulness that he won't admit. Job remains steadfast. His wife tells him to curse God, and he refuses to curse him. But as the trial wears on, Job wants answers. Why does Job want answers? Because Job wants to be vindicated. He wants to be shown to have been right. Isn't that what it feels like? We want answers? God, we cannot keep defending you to those who assault us for sticking up for you. That's the temptation Job faces. I need some vindication now, God. Everyone else is telling me that you are really not good and do not care. My flesh is crying out with the same temptation that this isn't the right way. And before long, there we are. God is on trial and we are the judge. And when the roles get reversed, we forget that we have no straight line of justice with which to judge God. We get twisted up with reality when He is the only one who sees the end from the beginning. And in that moment, we are tempted to question the love and the faithfulness of God. But Job learned that God's wisdom and understanding so far exceeds ours that he would later rejoice in it and find out that God would give him the fruitful return of blessing. And Job, who suffered, considered God faithful. And he was steadfast. See, brothers and sisters, an undivided confidence in the Lord's coming will produce these qualities seen here. These qualities are an act of patient faith in the purposes of the Lord through our lives. We all hunger for vindication. And if, listen, just practically speaking, if that hunger dominates our lives, we will want fruit to prove ourselves to others, and we will take shortcuts to make ourselves look more accomplished. If our hunger for vindication dominates our lives, we will not rejoice when others are recognized for their accomplishments. We'll want to be the ones who get the attention. We will find ourselves tempted to grumble and to complain against one another so we can put others down so that we will be recognized. If our hunger for vindication dominates our lives, we will grow bitter against God when He calls us into trials that make us look like failures or even feel weighed down while others seem to be thriving. Before long, we'll be tempted to be His judge rather than to plead for mercy as sinners before a holy God. 
Ultimately, we will use our words. In verse 12, he talks about oaths and letting our yes be yes. When we long and hunger for vindication, we will use our words to shape a false reality of our success and will overextend our promises and our appeals to our own trustworthiness rather than just represent ourselves with a plain spoken understanding of our weakness and limits and let our yes be yes and our no be no. All of this is the fruit of wanting to be vindicated before others. But listen, the truth is we're not the ones who need to be vindicated. You know, all, this, all these thoughts and this hunger that we have for vindication, when we stop and think about it, we're not the ones who need to be vindicated. We've been sinful. In fact, the coming of the Lord, we understand in the Bible, long before it vindicates anything, is going to expose us. You see, this is, this is the problem we have, isn't it? We want to be vindicated for the things that we've been right about, but we forget how much we've been wrong about. How much of our life has been wrapped up in sinful motives, sinful responses, sinful actions. And if you understand the gospel, you're not longing for the day of the Lord to be vindicated. (laughs) You're counting on the mercy of God for what will be exposed. There's a day coming when our lives will be exposed before God, every one of them, the things that we've done. And a just judge, not one we've been able to hide things from, will examine us and our righteousness, expose our unrighteousness, and in that day we won't be asking for vindication. We'll be thanking God for the cross. We'll be ha- all of our hope, if we have any hope, will be in the mercy of God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And the only one who will be vindicated on that day will be Jesus himself. Who lived the perfect life. Was faithful in all things before God. And died on the cross for our sins in our place. Like a common criminal where he was seen and mocked as nothing. And awaits to this day to be vindicated in glory before our eyes. That we would know the true depth of his love and mercy and justice and goodness that that isn't seen before our eyes or the world's. Jesus is the one who awaits to be vindicated, who is willing to have his life overshadowed by the unrighteousness of the world while he did what was right and remained steadfast for our sake and to pay our penalty on the cross so that when we're exposed, we could trust in the justification of God who declares us righteous through the cross. And today, if you've never put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you may be hoping one day to be vindicated for how you live your life, but if you're really honest, you know that there, more importantly, there are things you're going to need to be forgiven for. And the Bible says that the sins that we've committed will separate us from any hope of being vindicated and that we should count on God's justice being poured over our life in the day of the Lord when Jesus comes as the rightful judge of the world. But the good news of the gospel is that for every person, 
No matter how deeply they've sinned, no matter deep, how deeply they'll be exposed for their sinfulness, that there is a hope that is present now and to the very end in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're willing to confess and expose your sin to the Lord now as you call on Him, He will cover it with the cross. And in that day, you will find mercy and hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Not because of any work or change that you've done, but because of your willingness to no longer trust in your strength, but by faith to receive the mercy of God promised in the cross of the, of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I wouldn't want anyone here today who hears these words to go out into eternity to know that the coming of the Lord is near and not have the confidence that on that day they will be received by the mercy of God because of their faith in Jesus Christ. Today, the Lord extends his hand of mercy to you if you will call on him in simple faith. That is our hope. Jesus will be vindicated. His name will be the name that is above every name. And on that day, the Lord will divide out those who trusted and hoped in him from those who decided to go on their own record. And so I invite you today to turn to Christ, to put your hope in Him by faith. If you're already a Christian and you're here today, I want to encourage you to set your confidence and hope in the Lord to receive mercy in that day and that you would live with a sense of patience, a, a sense of peacefulness with one another and perseverance as we continue to walk faithfully with the Lord and await the glories of that day when He makes all things new. And in a moment, we're going to receive the bread and the cup as a celebration that that covenant hope is ours. That through faith in Jesus' broken body and shed blood on the cross, that we've been invited to, to expose our sin so that we can be covered by the mercy of God and His blood can wash away our sin. If that's your testimony, that you have put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that's where your hope lies, we invite you to take the bread and cup with, with us as we bear this testimony together in a few minutes. If that's not your testimony, we'd ask that you let the bread and the cup pass and that you would spend just some time as we all reflect together on the hope of the gospel. Uh, you'd spend some time reflecting on what you've heard and, and using this as a time to open your life before God. Would you join me in prayer as we prepare for the Lord's Supper and sing together. Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time of worship, this time to remember you, to set our hope firmly in the coming of the Lord. Lord, I pray for any person who's not put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that even now as they've heard these words, that they would respond, that their hearts would cry out to you, that they would desire to know that they are secured in a relationship with you through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and that they would call upon you and receive the gift and hope of your salvation. Lord, I pray that you would root us deep in that promise and hope that we would be people who find our security not in the passing approval of a culture or people, but Lord, in the steadfast approval of an eternal God. Lord, that's where our hope is in Jesus' name.